We decided to put a bit of a warning on this episode. We feel like this one could be a tad controversial. We took a concept from the business field, organizational structures, and we applied it to our world. We simplified it a lot, but if you try to imagine the influence these groups, or roles, can have on one another, then you can hopefully see why treating them as separate entities, in this case, makes sense. The influence of these groups is not representative of how we showed them, but we think it would be hard to argue that each of these roles can have tremendous impacts in our current world. By the end of it, hopefully you understand why we chose to present it in this way. As mentioned back in episode 21, governments and businesses can overlap one another in many ways. Governments have been incorporating more strategies from the business sector to help it become more efficient and effective. And to show how this type of knowledge extends past organizations in business and governments, here's a quote we pulled from the book The World's Newest Profession by Christopher D. McKenna. All of the major American Christian denominations, including Episcopalians, Baptists, Congregationalists, Methodists, Lutherans, and Catholics, adopted corporate models during the 20th century to coordinate their finances and church administration. Organized religions have to manage many of the same challenges that governments and businesses do. Lots of religions are involved with various charity work, education, and community services, just as a few examples. All of these matters require staff, financing, coordination, etc. You can read more in the book, The World's Newest Profession, as well as explore the history of management consulting. It does a pretty fair job of exploring the profession and doesn't really pull punches where it needs to, in case the title of the book wasn't obvious of that. Consulting can sometimes be like taking a car to the mechanic for an inspection. Some techs might tell you it just needs an oil change and maybe an air filter, while others hand you a bill for thousands of dollars worth of work that is unnecessary. Which is why some are not the biggest fans of consultants. But much like salespeople and technicians, just because some individuals behave unethically, it should not be reason to call the entire field of professionals into question. About a quarter of our previous episodes are dedicated to talking about communication in one form or another. Where we presented our evidence to show that on the subject of sustainability, communication has broken down. See episode 31. If I was a listener on this show, and being a bit of a skeptic myself, here is a question I would ask Carlos on the subject of communication. So Carlos, I have a question for you. You're telling us listeners that communication has broken down, that individuals are not aware of the problem of sustainability, so much so that the overall public perception of sustainability is incorrect. If this is the case, then how come, on the subject of climate change, there appears to be an international agreement, or consensus, at the levels of governments? You keep annoying us with the Paris Agreement, but how could global governments sign an agreement like that if the communication is compromised to the level that you claim? Are you attempting to insinuate something? While you ponder that question, Carlos, I'll run the intro myself for a change. How hard can it be?
Oops, my bad. Third time's a charm. Maybe if I push this big red button. Welcome to Viable Underdogs, where we try and teach you some cool stuff and hopefully encourage everyone to become a bit more sustainable. My name is John, the business expert Carlos is with me as well. This is episode 33, the boiling point in the Newton scale. Today we're exploring our world's organizational framework in order to explain how it could be possible that nations at government level are in agreement on matters like climate change, while it appears for a large part that individuals within these nations are not. My question to Carlos can be answered pretty quickly. Remember back in episodes 22 and 23 where we mentioned that when a person is seeking information that they should defer to the collective expertise of an entire field? Well, governments typically go straight to the source for information. In this case, the scientists. Now, this information is still subject to the challenges within the field of science, see episode 29, which may explain why even at government level, there is still the odd debate about the severity of problems like climate change. But it eliminates a good portion of where the communication breakdown is occurring between the fields of science and the general public. This is why governments appear to be more on board than the general public on issues like global warming, which causes climate change. The general public is more susceptible to issues like the telephone game, see episode 27, and irresponsible journalism, see episode 8. The general public is further removed from the source of the information, in this case, the scientists. Now, this initially seems counterintuitive. How is it possible that governments are aware of a problem that the general public is for the most part not? And wouldn't this then be easily corrected? To answer this question, we are going to present a framework for the organizational structure of our world. For more info on organizational structures, see last episode. And if you start thinking that what we are presenting is a bit of a stretch, remind yourself of the questions that we just asked. How is it possible that governments are aware of a problem that the general public is not, and wouldn't this then be easily corrected? Let's start with one of our trademarked analogies. Let's say Carlos and John start a small sustainability business. John will be head of marketing, and Carlos will be the CEO. Three other people are also hired on to fill other roles, an accountant, an engineer, and an environmental lawyer. They have two ways to organize the structure of this organization when they start up. Carlos can be in charge of the majority of decisions and the general direction of the company since he is the CEO. Or, knowing that the business is quite small, it may be best that every one of the five employees participates in the decisions and general direction. Or, John and Carlos could decide to run all the decisions while the rest of the employees are not involved. The degree to which each person is involved could change depending on many factors, ranging from one person having almost total control to each person sharing an equal role of control. If we then take this small business analogy and apply it globally to our planet, we have five similar roles. Our thumbnail pick for this episode gives you an overview of the structure. 
you should be able to click on the picture to see a larger version. I was looking to show off my world-class paint skills. If you happen to be driving or doing something else at the moment, I will be explaining this in any case. The picture is not necessary for understanding. And in reality, these are not separated the way you see in the picture. All groups or roles are made up of individuals, and all groups acquire and share knowledge, for instance. But this is intended to show the influence of the respective groups. These are governments, businesses, religions, information, and individuals. And this has existed, at least to some degree, since the dawn of modern civilization. There are three things we wanted to mention before we go on. This is a simplified version of a very elaborate concept created for ease of understanding. The world is nowhere near as simple as we portrayed in the picture. And the level of influence each group has is not scaled properly in the picture, since this is highly subjective depending on which expert you consult. And the communication channels shown are not to scale either. Last, we realize it looks a bit like a pentagram, and this was certainly not done intentionally, particularly as we are covering the topic of belief and religion this episode. We apologize if anyone misinterprets this, as well as other things we have possibly overlooked that are similar to this kind of issue. There are a lot of cultures on this planet, and even though we are not looking to offend anyone, this is not easily accomplished due to these cultural differences. We are not experts on international culture and customs, so we appreciate our listeners keeping this in mind. We presented this organizational structure to try and provide a simplistic visual aid of what we're getting at. The lines of communication in red are the ones in trouble. Governments typically get their info straight from the scientists, as shown in the picture. It's not to say the other groups or roles don't do this as well, but nowhere near the level governments do. It's kind of a failsafe created exactly for this reason. Give human ingenuity a little credit. The crazy thing to remember is that, unlike in a business or other organization, no one created this organizational framework. The mass disruption of the 20th century did when this rapid change violently shifted influence among all the roles. And here's another thing to remember. We're not trying to imply that one role has more power than other roles. But it would be hard to argue that all of these roles can have massive influence throughout our world. And with the internet, now more than ever. All of these roles have a lot of power in the 21st century. The five roles are governments, business, religion, information, and individuals. The role of governments can mean any style of government. It basically just pertains to the person or persons in power. This involves cities, states, provinces, national governments, and international organizations like the United Nations. The role of businesses refers to for-profits, non-profits, charities, merchants, international corporations, etc. The role of religion pertains to systems of beliefs and religious institutions. The role of information pertains to anything that has to do with acquiring and sharing knowledge. 
This includes scientists, journalism, social media, television, etc. The role of individuals means exactly that, the individual people that live everywhere in our world. And just like with our startup analogy, these roles can and do overlap one another, and the level of influence can vary greatly, which becomes evident when examining these roles throughout our species' history. Some roles have often been combined, and for the majority of our species' history, the influence of the role of individuals was practically non-existent. Globally, the 20th century saw a massive shift in the influence of many of these roles. The influence that businesses have has grown, see episode 21. The influence of information has grown, see places like Silicon Valley and the power of negative or positive press as a couple examples. And the influence of individuals has grown as well. Some individuals have more wealth than entire countries, and the internet has afforded greater access to the sea of knowledge, see episode 22, not to mention that in many countries, individuals elect their governments and ensure businesses act more ethically and responsibly with the use of things like review sites as just a few examples. This podcast is proof that ideas can now come from anywhere. A lot of this was unthinkable even a couple centuries ago. We're not here to discuss what the best organizational structure of our world is. We are merely stating how it currently operates. All of these groups have a significant degree of influence currently, today, on our globe. This may be different in the future, just as it has been vastly different in the past. But right now, if we are serious about addressing sustainability, then all of these groups need to be in agreement on the subject of sustainability. Governments, for a large part, are already there. See episode 36. But the roles of individuals, businesses, and information are making full acceptance of the idea at government levels more challenging. Businesses are slowly coming around too, which is why more progressive companies are adapting the triple bottom line people, planet, profits, and are injecting more CSR, or corporate social responsibility, into their business decisions and models. The adoption curve for business is quite slow since they were initially taught an incorrect model of strictly being concerned about profits. See episode 24. Religion, for the most part, is not affecting the adoption curve for sustainability. We will explain later in the episode in more detail. Information, which includes the field of journalism, as we have mentioned, is in desperate need of repair. See episode 31 and any other episode that pertains to communication. Last, since individuals for the most part rely heavily on the role of information, the adoption curve for sustainability has been quite slow here as well. But correcting the communication issues in the role of information should help accelerate this adoption curve. The information on sustainability needs to be corrected, and the public perception of sustainability also needs to be corrected for this to happen. You might have noticed that we have discussed each one of these groups or roles in some way or another in previous episodes, save for one. And back in episode 20, we discussed how in a sales pitch, it's a good idea to avoid discussing religion and politics. And then we broke that sales rule by discussing politics. 
Well, we're going to break the other one. We're about to discuss religion. The important thing to keep in mind about a global organizational structure is that there's lots of overlap. Businesses, governments, and religions overlap one another in various ways, which also overlaps the media slash journalism fields in the role of information. And last I checked, all of these groups are made up of individuals. And the reason we have never discussed religion up to this point is, although it has a lot of influence in a lot of ways throughout our world, based on our research and diagnostics, it's not really doing much to hinder sustainability. Yeah, every now and then, you might hear something that might lead us to believe otherwise, but there are a lot of religious people in our world. According to Google, Christianity makes up about a third of us, 31%. Muslims make up about 23%, Hindus make up 15%, and Buddhism makes up 7.1%. This means that around 75% of our world makes up these religions and or belief systems. And obviously there are other religions as well, and many different denominations and beliefs within these religions as well. Globally, our species is made up mostly of religious or spiritual people, and many are also non-religious or undecided. And yet, pretty much every single nation on Earth signed the Montreal Protocol and the Paris Agreement. We won't claim to be experts on religions and systems of belief on the globe, but from what we have encountered, it appears they are largely based on the belief of cooperation, looking out for one another. They are based on the beliefs of respect, love, and general human decency. And any time they are not these things, this says more about those particular individuals than it does about the religion itself. If I, as a Canadian, were to spray paint the very Canadian maple leaf on various global landmarks, like the Great Wall of China, the pyramids in Egypt, or Angkor Wat in Cambodia, this would not make me a patriot. It would make me an a-hole. Not just because I am a guest in these countries, and not just because I have now spat in these nations' faces, and not just because I have desecrated the achievements of our ancient ancestors, but I also bring shame on my fellow Canadians who may feel the need to apologize for the actions of someone who was not acting like a Canadian. And although there are occasional disputes between science and religion, scientists can come from a wide variety of backgrounds, nations, religions, political ideologies, and systems of belief, proving that these two entities are not mutually exclusive. We're going to leave it at this, and we sincerely hope that this was presented as tastefully as we intended. Because as we have mentioned many times, sustainability concerns everyone on this planet, regardless of their country of origin, political ideologies, and spiritual and religious beliefs. On the subject of global organizational structure of the 21st century, there is one more topic that we need to discuss the Cold War between the United States and the former USSR. The world of 2019 has two different generations of adults making decisions in our world, those that grew up during the Cold War and those that did not, which is part of the problem causing generational rifts. Here is a short, oversimplified explanation of the Cold War. 
The end of the Second World War introduced something that had never existed before in human history. Planet-killing weapons. At the height of the Cold War, the global nuclear arsenal could have destroyed most, and possibly even all life, on our planet due to consequences of things like nuclear winter. Well, unfortunately, it still could. And although there are many factors that contributed to the Cold War, much like there are many factors contributing to the sustainability crisis, this situation likely would have occurred regardless even if the participant countries were different. The reason? Game Theory. See Episode 10. Since engaging in nuclear war is not ideal, even for the side that may quote, win, the more cooperative decision is for everyone to agree to not have nuclear weapons. However, the more risk-averse strategy is to have them, in case others decide to start manufacturing and stockpiling planet-killing weapons. Mutually assured destruction is an extreme version of game theory. Historically, war has been the driving part behind innovation and technology. How do you think Leonardo da Vinci paid a lot of his bills? By designing different military devices and strategies. The first branch of engineering ever created was military. And as these technological advancements continued, it led to one inevitable road, planet-killing weapons. The ability to target and decimate entire cities and nations with what was essentially the push of a button, thereby creating a tense global stalemate. And then, just like that, the Cold War ended and in a very short amount of time, the period of globalization began. There were many reasons for this, but we want to focus on two of the roles we mentioned before in our global organizational structure, the role of individuals and the role of business. Business by nature indiscriminately seeks out new markets, which meant they thrived in this new environment and continued their expansion. The role of individuals has changed too. Many people frequently work and travel abroad, and this trend continues to increase, as can be seen by those concerned that tourism is becoming problematic in some places. Our world is quickly becoming smaller and more global. We're not here to say whether this is necessarily a good thing nor a bad thing, but this change has happened very quickly, leading to conflicting views and opinions, particularly among those who don't fully understand the changes that have taken place over very short amounts of time. Decisions that need to be taken in a world constantly under threat of nuclear war can be very different from decisions that need to be taken in a world of globalization. Here's the thing. Globalization isn't exactly new, it just looks a bit different than it did in the past. Again, please forgive our loose usage of terminology, but any historical empire is technically an attempt at globalization. The difference today is that all five roles in the global organizational structure are taking part of their own accord, whereas in the past, this was not the case. Governments have international bodies like the UN, the European Union, and NAFTA. International business is so common, there are specific programs devoted to it in universities. Media outlets and news outlets have global networks. And one need look no further than Canada to see this with religion. The majority of its diverse cultures and religions did not originate in this country. And, as we mentioned, 
tourism and international work is increasingly becoming more common. As we have said, for better or worse, this is our current world. And the sustainability crisis can only be solved with a global effort. Much like empires of the past had winners and losers, globalization at present also has winners and losers as well. This is the first time our species has gotten this far, and unfortunately, we're still figuring things out. And the things we get wrong can have devastating and terrible consequences, such as our current sustainability crisis. Sustainability is currently affecting some far worse than others across the globe. One of the many reasons that the solutions need to be implemented at a global level, and as quickly as possible. But not so quick as to contradict what we have said in episodes 31 and 35 about not enacting change until communication is addressed. And the beauty of our current global organizational structure is that there are five possible pathways for solutions. The five roles of our global organizational structure. Now, we're going to take a brief intermission, then return to the second part of our episode. Our current main podcast logo was found on pixabay.com. The artist's name is Geralt, G-E-R-A-L-T. We have also used quite a few pictures from other artists on there as well, so make sure you head on over and share your appreciation with all the artists there. They do excellent work. But soon, we're going to need an actual company logo. And we will be basing this on our favorite animals. I'm a fan of penguins, while Carlos is a fan of beavers. Stay tuned for the new logo. The famous scientist, Isaac Newton, is often quoted as having said, I have stood on the shoulders of giants. This quote is often used to show appreciation for those that came before and added to the well of knowledge. See episode 22. Without all the discoveries passed along from our ancestors, we would not have the world we have today. Though, to be fair, some think that Newton was being sarcastic, particularly as he had a reputation for being about as humble as Drax. The quote is often originally attributed to John of Salisbury, but it's also possible he snagged the quote from someone else. However, the underlying meaning of the quote is still relevant. Even the most least dumb people that have ever lived on Earth could not have made the same discoveries they did without the others that came before them. But we here at Viable Underdogs think it goes even further than that. This may be a tad fromage, but it's a society that allows people to make discoveries, since discoveries require the following. Access to the Sea of Knowledge Even right now, millions of people constantly ensure that this access grows every single day. Time Discoveries typically take lots of time and hard work. Sometimes they require the undivided attention of the person doing the discovering. This would not be possible without a society providing easy access to food, water, sanitation, electricity, emergency services, and cold beers for yours truly. Funding. Oftentimes, sources of funding are hard to come by, and requires those that believe in the discoverer's ideas to pony up the cash. And then other times, the discoverer requires different types of unconventional support. To illustrate, here is a story of Dmitry Mendeleev's mother. In the mid-1800s, when Dmitry was still a young boy, his father went blind, 
so his mother was forced to reopen the family glass factory as a way to support a ridiculous amount of children. Many of our ancestors were kind of like rabbits, so historians cannot even agree on just how many children there was in this family. Shortly thereafter, the father died, leaving the mother to tend to the children on her own, and then the glass factory burned down. Despite all the hardships, Dimitri's mother believed that her son was destined for scientific greatness. And this was a time where the access to the well of knowledge was more restrictive, which would probably explain why she was willing to cross the country with Dimitri on horseback. Today, this would be a 31-hour car ride. Imagine how much harder this would be on horseback, and imagine the thrill of finally making it to Moscow, and then imagine being told, no dice. Moscow University would not be admitting young Dmitri. What would you do in this situation? If you said, another 8-hour car ride up to St. Petersburg, you would be correct. Except, more tired, and more horse, and no car ride, and basically poor. Luckily, St. Petersburg hesitantly accepted Dmitri, and he went on to help father the periodic table of elements in chemistry. But it's hard to imagine he would have been able to do that without the support of his tenacious mother. Full disclosure, we um, borrowed this story from the Crash Course Chemistry number 4 on YouTube. Their version is a whole lot better too. Even though we all know and remember many famous names, we oftentimes forget that in many cases, these individuals had many people supporting them and affording them the ability to make these discoveries. If Stanislav Petrov had instead decided to believe the readings the early warning detection system was providing him with, see episode 31, we're willing to bet you wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. It could be argued that he's partially responsible for any new discovering occurring after 1983. It's not just him either. There are lots of other unsung heroes whose actions have allowed us to live in the world we have today. Also, the last time we mentioned Stanislav Petrov, we forgot to leave any article sources. We will leave one in this episode. That was our bad. There are lots of people every day doing their part to make this world a slightly better world than it was yesterday. Although, it's often hard to see, since we've still got a lot of problems and challenges we need to address. Throughout the course of our diagnostic, creating this podcast, and crafting our strategies, we were humbled by the sheer vastness of the sea of knowledge. Every time we hit a snag, it turns out someone else had encountered similar problems and had already figured out a solution. Even if these people have long since died, it kind of felt like they were still communicating with the world through their ideas, which we are sincerely humbled to have the privilege to share with you now. We did our best to give credit where it's due throughout the entire podcast because all of these names played a small role in crafting all of these strategies. Even though we never had a large team, organization, or university supporting us, we never for a minute felt like we were doing this alone, because we had the written works of some of the best and brightest minds guiding us along, motivating us, and providing expertise. Every episode we wrote, we heard Howard Aiken telling us that we really needed to ram these new ideas down people's throats, and that we needed to expect that this would not be an easy sell. We had Kurt Lewin challenging us that we can only change things we understand. 
and Ramanamani, the NASA scientist who reminded us that we are usually fairly logical as a species. If a problem exists and no one is really trying to fix it, it probably means many people don't realize the problem exists. We are thankful for friends and family who may not have always understood exactly what we were working on, but were open-minded enough for us to engage them in order to bounce some ideas off of them. Not to mention them listening to us for hours on end. If we couldn't get them to understand, how would we then get you, our listener who doesn't know us, to understand? We are thankful for the responsible journalists who tirelessly aim to ram the idea of sustainability down our throats to finally shake us out of our own apathy. We are thankful for educational content like Crash Course, SciShow, and Khan Academy on YouTube. They increased access to knowledge. And if those shows didn't exist, it's entirely possible that this podcast would not exist either. We were also able to snag additional materials for free from educational institutions and our local library. Yep, those are still a thing. We are thankful for the many awesome people we have met during our travels throughout the world. And most of all, we are thankful to anyone who has taken time out of their busy lives to listen to our ideas. Regardless of how you decide to choose, we still thank you for taking the time. What we're asking of you isn't easy, but we wouldn't for a second ask it of you if we didn't believe in the ridiculous power of human ingenuity. And we hope you appreciate the beauty of it as much as we do. It's pretty cool that anyone can take an idea as small as lateral thinking, combine it with the largest free reserve of knowledge known in the universe, with a free state-of-the-art search engine, to make this both terrible and awesome podcast for a couple hundred bucks. And most, most of all, I am personally thankful to my mom. Her strength and tenacity shifted some of my old beliefs and preconceptions, and in doing so, encouraged me to pursue these ideas. If this whole thing falls flat, then that's on us. If it succeeds, however, then she is the one that we are thanking. Because just like without Dimitri's mom, there might not have been a periodic table of elements. Without my mom, there never would have been viable underdogs. Cheers. Thanks for listening. As always, please share and forward this podcast. The first step towards realistic sustainability is in knowledge and discussion. And this can't happen without everyone's input. Please send any questions, comments, or heartwarming stories to viableunderdogs at gmail.com. Our intro music is composed by Mark Kronowski, and the music currently playing by Jonathan Atkinson, and the intermission music by Philippe Vassio. Once again, we apologize for forgetting to include the article at the end of episode 31. There are many places you can go to learn more about Stanislav Petrov, but here is a well-written article that also shares another story of another gentleman that prevented a nuclear war. I won't say his name because I know I won't pronounce it correctly, and I've done that enough already on this show. Just head on over to Vox.com, that's V-O-X, and read the story. There's also a picture of the lieutenant colonel in the article, which we only mention because we are envious of his terrific moustache. 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 The article is called, 35 Years Ago Today, One Man Saved Us from World-Ending Nuclear War. Written by Dylan Matthews on September 26, 2018. As well, as mentioned on the show, we used the story from the Crash Course Chemistry Show on YouTube. Episode 4 was the one that they talked about the story of Dmitry Mendeleev.